course, uh, we've got a few more weeks of this, and today we're going back to the story of Esther. Now, last week, uh, we looked at the fourth chapter, and I kind of, uh, if you were here, I kind of gave a brief overview of the first three chapters. Uh, so I know that not everyone was here last week, so I'm going to give a quick overview of those first four chapters. And if you want to know more, please uh, go back and, and, and read it uh, for yourself as well. So basically, there are a few uh, Jewish people, there are some Jewish people who were left behind, who decided to stay behind uh, in the Persian Empire, while others went back to Israel. Um, and so uh, a couple of those who stayed behind uh, were uh, Esther, who was an orphan, we are told, and Mordecai. Mordecai uh, was her cousin, but was more like a surrogate father. Uh, this was during the reign, reign of King Ahasuerus of the Persian Empire, and he had a massive party, uh, and at the end of that party, he wanted Queen Vashti to come and kind of entertain them, and Queen Vashti was having none of it. She said no, so she quickly lost her queendom, if you will, and there was a contest, and in the midst of the contest, uh, it was Esther uh, who became queen. Now, Mordecai told her, don't tell anyone that you are Jewish, so she became queen. At the same kind of time, uh, you have, uh, you have uh, Haman, and Haman is, is not a good person, and Haman kind of worked his way up. He was kind of the king's right-hand man, and Haman uh, did not like Mordecai because Mordecai did not bow to uh, uh, Haman like Haman thought he should have. But Haman uh, was such the bad character that not only uh, did he get upset with Mordecai, he then said, I want to destroy all of the Jewish people altogether. And so he kind of concocted this plan and he went and he kind of in a very subtle way gave it to the king. Uh, and the king signed off on this edict that, uh, that they were going to kill all of the Jewish people. Well, when Mordecai got wind of this, he went to the gate and, uh, uh, and he made sure that Esther, who was uh, unaware of what was going on and her isolation as queen, he let her know, look, something has to happen. And there was this back and forth, uh, if you recall. And, and basically he said, look, you know what? Um, if, if you don't do it, somebody else will. But you should realize that all of us are going to die, that all of the Jewish people, including you, are going to die if nothing happens. And, and, and who knows? Perhaps. You were raised for such, or you were put in this royal position for such a time as this. The queen was very anxious and fearful, as you can imagine. You can't just show up to the king um, a certain death if you do, unless the king holds up his gold scepter. So she told Mordecai, but I, and she said, you all fast for three days, and then I will go before the king. Now that brings us to chapter 5. Now, this morning as I was, not this morning, but during this week as I was thinking about this, I, I hate diving into scripture. I want us to read as much of this story as is possible. I don't like diving in, I should say, into a, into a story. So I'm actually going to have us look at three chapters today. But as I continue to think about reading these three chapters, and they're actually relatively short chapters, it should only take 45 minutes to an hour to read them. I was reminded of what the Jewish people do during Purim. Purim is kind of this festival where they celebrate the deliverance of the Jews through Esther and Mordecai. And it's such a celebration for them that they oftentimes, when they gather together to celebrate, they will all, they'll, they'll be in costumes of different characters from the story. Um, they, they'll get together. They read all ten chapters. And whenever they read off names like Haman... Everybody who is there will begin to boo. And whenever they read off a name like 
uh, like Esther or Mordecai, they will celebrate and cheer. It's a, it's, it's a huge event, very congregational. Uh, there's actually used, uh, in many cases, there's actually um, drinking involved. So that, as some ancient uh, 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 folks would say, that by the time you get to the 10th chapter, you should hardly be able to know when they're saying Mordecai or when they're saying Haman. We're not going to do that today. But I do want this to be an all play. So I want us today to do that. I want us, as I read these three chapters, I know that this is not going to be what many of you want to do. But I want us, in those moments when I say, Haman, you? Good. And whenever I say, Queen Esther or Mordecai, you? Yes. And as we go on, it needs to get louder because you would have, in this sense, had more and more to drink. Okay? (laughs) One last thing. And I just read this yesterday, actually. Which is that oftentimes now, uh, people will bring boxes of pasta or macaroni and cheese uh, so that when you say the name of Haman, you'll do it then so that you can't really hear it. And then they will give away that macaroni and cheese to a food pantry because at the end of this, they're supposed to care for the poor. So if I would have been, again, a better pastor, I would have told you all to bring something. The good news is we had about a half a box left from Costco of mac and cheese. So I have brought that. And there are about nine of you who have those boxes, and this is why I gave them to you. And it's also why I didn't tell you why I had given it to you. (laughs) So that when I read, hey, man, you need to shake those children. Because this is really a genuinely great story. So let us begin with chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace opposite the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne inside the palace opposite the entrance to the palace. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won his favor and he held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the top of the scepter. The king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? You guys are good at this. Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be given to you. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared how do they do 10 chapters like this (laughs) while they were drinking wine the king said to Esther what is your petition it shall be granted to you and what is your request even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled then Esther answered this is my petition and request if I have won the king's favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet that I will prepare for them, and then I will do as the king has said. Haman went out that day happy and in good spirits, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was infuriated with Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Then he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman 
recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the ministers of the king. Haman added, even Queen Esther, let no one but myself come with the king to the banquet that she prepared. Tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this does me no good so long as I see Mordecai, the, the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, let a pole 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hung on it. That's weird to say it right there like that. Then go with the king to the banquet in good spirits. This advice pleased Haman, and he had the pole made. Chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of records, the annals, and they were read to the king. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had conspired to kill King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hung on the pole that he had prepared for him. So the king's servants told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what shall be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom? Would the king wish to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king wishes to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden with a royal crown on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let him robe the man whom the king wishes to honor, and let him conduct the man on horseback through the open square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor honor. Then the king said to Haman, quickly take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and robed Mordecai. And led him riding through the open square of the city, proclaiming, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him, his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom your downfall has begun is of the Jewish people, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman off to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Chapter 7. You're feeling the warmth now, remember. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. 
And on the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me. That is my petition. And the lives of my people, that is my request. For we have been sold. I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace. But no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has presumed to do this? Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king rose from the feast in wrath and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that the king had determined to destroy him. And when the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman had thrown himself on the couch where Esther, where Esther was reclining. And the king said, will he even violate the queen in my present in my own house? And as the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, look at the very pole that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, stands at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. And so they hung Haman on the pole that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. And put your macaroni and cheese down. Let us pray. God, at times we struggle to enter in to your word, into the scriptures, into the story of your kingdom. So we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to fully be a part of what it means that you speak to us through these pages, through stories long ago. We pray that you would help us to understand how they speak to us and our story, even this morning. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, as many of you know, growing up, I uh, spent a goodly amount of time in the Pentecostal church. And there are, are many things from my upbringing uh, that I appreciate and I am very thankful 
before. One of, one of the things was the, is the ways in which uh, you could clearly, in the Pentecostal church, you could clearly worship God with all of yourself, with all of your physical body. And you could see that at worship services. There was uh, oftentimes little restraint. It was, it was clear that all that they could bring all of themselves into worship in the ways that they worshipped. And that was a blessing in many ways to me. Uh, the music was oftentimes uh, filled with great exuberance and the, uh, the, the talent oftentimes that you would see in a Pentecostal church because they had been raised uh, singing. The, sing, the sung word was remarkable. And so it was, it was quite easy to just kind of want to proclaim God and to worship God. Uh, another thing about the Pentecostal church is that at about the 60-minute mark of the worship service, they knew that they were just reaching the end of the introduction of the whole service. And they knew that because the preacher hadn't even stood up yet. And so you knew it was going to be long. Now, as a kid, quite honestly, I actually didn't like that all that much. Um, but as a pastor now, it fills me with great joy to know that you could go longer than 60 minutes and that people could survive. But one of the other things that I really loved about the Pentecostal church, and it's a part of the reason why I wanted to do this more uh, Purim-like reading of these three chapters, is that in the Pentecostal church, it was rare that it was just one person who was kind of participating in the service. In fact, uh, by and large, throughout the whole service, the whole congregation was actually genuinely involved in what was happening. Right, again, as I just said, the singing. And the singing, people were, uh, were oftentimes demonstrative, right, uh, and with their bodies and with their mouths. And so, uh, so there was clear that everybody was, or at least most people there, were participating um, it was clear, of course, in the preaching, as we've talked about, that there was a lot of kind of call and response. It was a dialogue much more than a monologue. And you could hear kind of folks going back and forth. There was this genuine kind of engagement from everybody. And even the prayer, if you want to freak out a non-Pentecostal, then have them go to a Pentecostal service and wait till someone stands up to say, okay, let's pray. Because it's very strange if you're unfamiliar. Because as soon, more often than not, as this person up here begins to pray, everybody else who was out there begins to pray their own prayer. And so it's this very kind of strange event as everyone, all of a sudden, the people around you are all praying. It's very different than how we tend to experience it. There's no right or wrong, but I, I appreciated in many ways just the sense that everyone knew that they were involved. We were all kind of involved in it. Again, to go back to kind of what we talked about with the story of King David, I love the fact of, of how can we get involved with the story? How can we dive into the pages of Scripture? How can we make sure that we are not just kind of reading Scripture, but that we are always allowing Scripture to read us? But there was one other aspect about the Pentecostal church that I both loved and that oftentimes caused me to struggle. And that was how so many seemed to, with great frequency and clarity, hear and see and feel God. I mean, they oftentimes would say, you know what, I got a word of the Lord. And all of a sudden, they were able to just kind of say, this is exactly what the Lord said to me. They were oftentimes able to say, oh yeah, I saw God uh, here. Or man, I really felt God today. I felt the Spirit today. And on the one hand, that was incredibly helpful for me because of the fact that I really believed that God was active in our world, that this was clearly not some deistic God that, you know, kind of started creation and then took a step back and just let us do whatever we wanted to do. No, no, this God was very active in their lives and in their world, and that was incredibly helpful. That continues to be very life-giving to me. On the other hand, 
someone like me, it was a struggle. Because the truth is that I rarely, if ever, really just knew for sure that I had heard God speak to me. I oftentimes struggled when others said, oh yeah, I saw God there, or I saw God there. I oftentimes struggled with really seeing God very well. When they would say, oh, I felt the Spirit today, I rarely necessarily felt the Spirit. I might have felt other things, but I didn't oftentimes, could not say with 100% accuracy that I felt the Spirit. And so I always struggled, and so I, I always worked. I was like, okay, surely at some moment I will see God clearly. At some day I will be able to hear God. At the third hour of the worship service, I will finally feel the Spirit move through me and say, ah, finally, here it is. And yet it never seemed to occur. And so I began to wonder whether or not the problem was not my hearing or my seeing or my feeling. It was simply my faith. And I began to believe that perhaps, perhaps something was wrong with me. Perhaps something was, was wrong. I, I didn't have enough faith maybe. I just couldn't see God like others could see him. And so I began to wrestle with my whole relationship with God because of the fact that I couldn't see or hear as some of these other folks seemed to be able to do so clearly and to enjoy to its fullest extent. And I wrestled with that all through high school and college and, and graduate school and even into seminary, into my mid-20s. And then slowly but surely, there were a couple of different scripture passages that began to kind of well up in me. That I began to remember or to see for the first time. One of those is a passage that I brought up probably half a dozen times or more uh, during my time here. It's one that I learned when I was in third grade, which is this great reminder, as I said a couple of weeks ago, of the critical importance of our teaching our covenant children. Right? When you teach a child, when you memorize a scripture passage, you might think, oh, that's great. They know that now that they're eight years old. But I'm here to tell you, at 28, all of a sudden, this scripture passage began to reveal itself to me, right? And that was Hebrews 11. Now, I, was, I memorized the whole chapter. I don't actually remember much of it. But I remember the first verse, right? Remember, it's in the King James Version. And it says this, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. And it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s that all of a sudden I realized that this passage that I would kind of had with me in my head, and, but probably not as much in my heart, all of a sudden I realized that I was there and I was waiting to have 100% certainty that I had seen God or that I had heard God or that I had felt God. But that, but that what I was looking for was certainty. And all of a sudden here Hebrews is saying, it's not that you have weak faith, Jerry. It's not that your, your faith is deficient. It's that it's actually just faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Now for some, yes, they see it and they can hear it and they can feel it and that is wonderful. But that chapter, all of a sudden, it gave me permission to not have to always think 
that I needed to see God or hear God or feel God. And in those moments, I didn't. And oftentimes, we may go through seasons. Some of us go through years or even decades when we do not. It does not necessitate that it means that you must, there's something wrong with you. It may just be that what you need is faith. And the second passage, and this became more alive to me when I was at seminary, was the whole book of Esther. Now, I mentioned this last week, and many of you already knew this anyways, which is that Esther is the one book where there is no explicit mention of God. Now, I suppose on the one hand you could say, wow, there's only one book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. But on the other hand, and I would say it's a stronger hand, you could say, what? Why in the world is there a book in the Bible that never explicitly mentions God? How strange is that? You got like, what, 66 books in the Bible? They probably could have done with 65. They didn't necessarily need that. Put it in a great, you know, books of wisdom or helpful stories or things like that. But why include it in the Bible? It is absolutely baffling that the Spirit of the God, a Spirit of God worked strongly enough in people's lives as they were kind of discerning the Spirit's leading for what to include in the canon of Scripture that they actually said, we know this doesn't say God, but we are going to put this book in the Bible anyways. And what I have become convinced of is the fact that the reason why the Spirit allowed a book that says nothing, never says God, is for people like me and maybe people like you. Because it is this remarkable invitation to say that even if you are not someone who easily sees God or hears God or feels God, you are still included in this faith. It is a gift. It is an invitation. It is a permission to be included in the community of faith because that's what it is, a community of faith. But of course, Esther does something else for us. Because while it never explicitly mentions God, there are throughout the story glimpses, traces of what seems to be much more than just humans at work. Let me just remind you of a few of these. There's a plot that Mordecai sees and hears about and tells about so that the coup was not able to occur. And so he reports it. But now he doesn't win anything for that. And if you were Mordecai, you might think to yourself, well, come on, God, if you're there, shouldn't I, shouldn't I have some kind of Treat or award or reward for this great thing that I did? Then Queen Vashti says no. She loses her queendom. But there just so happens to be someone named Esther who just so happens to be Jewish, who just so happens to win, if you will, the opportunity to be queen. Then remember, last week, Mordecai, says to her, look, Esther, if you don't do it, that's fine. But someone will rise up from some quarter in order to rescue the Jewish people. But what does that mean? What quarter? What is Mordecai saying? And then, of course, remember again what we said last week and earlier. Who knows 
Mordecai says, perhaps you have been put in this royal position for such a time as this. What is he saying there? Is he pointing to God? Is he, is he not pointing to God? Then Esther, and we don't have time to get all into it today, but the way that she just so carefully is able to, to kind of manage the king, the way that she communicates, the way that she puts him off a couple of times, is she just afraid or does she know because God has perhaps given her the wisdom to say you need to get the king in just the right position, in just the right place. And then it just so happens that the night before Mordecai is going to be killed, the king can't sleep. And it just so happens that he once read to him the book of records. And it just so happens that the page that is turned to is the page that relays how it is that Mordecai unveiled this plot to overthrow the king. All of these things taken in and of themselves, just a one-off, these are just coincidences. But when you begin to look at the whole list of things in Esther, what you begin to see is that these are not just mere coincidences. When you begin to put them one after another, after another, after another, what you begin to see, of course, is the way in which the finger of God has been with Esther and Mordecai, even if they couldn't see it themselves. And oftentimes in the midst of fear and anxiety of life, you cannot see it yourself. But as we as outsiders as we begin to look we can see wait a second that looks a whole lot like God wait a second that sounds something like God wait a second can't you feel the way the spirit is working when we put all of these things together all of a sudden we begin to see how this quiet oftentimes God is working in remarkable ways Michael Fox says, when it comes to the book of Esther, we read it like it is a spiritual practice. Because when we do what I just went through, when we begin to say, there, I see God there, I see God there, I see God there. When we begin to see it in the story, he says, we are practicing, we are building up habits and working our muscles so that we can begin to see it in our own lives. So that we can begin to see, oh, wait a second, if God is working in these kind of silent but clear ways through all of these different coincidences then what does that look like in my life when we begin to practice? And this is what Esther forces us to do because it doesn't say God said or God did or God saw. No, no, no. It just gives us all of this information. And then we get to be a part of the story and begin to see where God is at work. And so this week, I just took a few minutes and I just did this quickly on my own. I just said, well, how did I end up here? I didn't say, how did I end up here? I said, how did I end up here? And I'm not going to be able to go through all of them, but I am going to go back to when I was like 15 or 16 years old. Uh, this will be fast because it's a long time. When I had a pastoral intern in my church for the summer, his name was, I can't remember, it was either Rich or Rick. I can't remember which one, but let's say it was Rick. And, and, and Rick was there, and after a summer, he got together with me one-on-one. -on -one. He said, you know what, if you quit fooling around all the time, if you quit, you know, if you just would just be quiet sometimes, if you weren't always a fool, I don't remember the terminology, but this is what he wanted to say, if nothing else, you could one day, you could, you could lead, you could help be a leader in this church group. 
Now, I never thought about it that much after that in terms of I don't know that I actually ever did that. But what I do know is this. 30-some years later, I still remember what Rick or Rich or whoever it was, I still remember what he said. And then I went to college, and I've told you some of this before. I spent a semester in D.C. I thought I wanted to be an attorney, and I worked with a guy named Dave who was an attorney. And the whole time I worked with him, he just said, I don't know why anybody would want to become an attorney. Literally, that's what he said almost daily. And then, uh, and, then, uh, and then there was a professor at the same time who said, you know what, I don't necessarily see you as much as a justice doer, i.e. an attorney. I see you more as a, as a culture shaper. And I, I still am not entirely sure what that means, but I know that it made me start rethinking things. Then I started going to graduate school, and I started going to churches that were a little bit more reformed and a little less Pentecostal, and that was kind of helpful for me to just kind of experience that, maybe set the way for Presbyterianism. Then I went to Kansas City. I know this one's a little bit weird, but I went to Kansas City, and I have a cousin who's a pastor at a Nazarene church, and I went to go visit him. And and when I was there on that one visit, I was just going to go one time to see how he was doing. I met this young lady named Megan. And... And, and, and Megan, uh, the reason it's connected is to be very clear, I would not be here. The likelihood of me being here and being a pastor still is incredibly small if it were not for this young lady that I met named Megan on that day. And then we're fast forwarding, 2013, we skipped a lot, 2013. We came here in May of 2013 to run the Indy Mini with my cousin Rusty And when we were leaving Indianapolis to go back to Pennsylvania, my wife, Megan, said, you know, I could live in a place like this. And literally about two weeks later, I don't know if it just came on the market, if you will, or if I had just not seen it, but I saw this invitation or I saw this job posting for for Zionsville. I mean, what kind of name is Zionsville? Presbyterian Church. And so I called Megan and said, you know, were you being serious about that? And then sure enough, I had a phone call with someone named Dave and with with Judy and with a few others, right, uh, from this committee from Zionsville Presbyterian Church. And that night after that first phone call, this is true, I I could not sleep because I was so excited about what might be. Now again, any of those things in and of themselves, you could just look at them and just think nothing. You could just think that Rich or Rick, whatever his name was, was just trying to get me to settle down and grow up. You could just think that, that, that Dave, the attorney, that he was just kind of a, a burned out clearly, right? It was just a bad internship. You could just think that Susan just realized I'd make a really bad attorney. And so she said, no, you should probably do something else. You could just think that, you know, that Megan felt sorry for me. And then it was too late and we were married. You could easily just, <laughs> just think that we just so happened to come to Indianapolis right before this job got posted. You could just think, well, maybe the committee just wasn't that smart when they took a chance on a barely still 30-something, but a 30-something-year-old pastor just taken individually. You could just say, ah, it's just luck. But when you begin to slowly go through, as I did this week, and just kind of go back and look at it, it's pretty remarkable to see. And all of a sudden, when I did that, what I realized is that maybe That maybe I and that maybe all of us, if we cultivate this in our lives, might be able to see and hear and feel God just as much as any Pentecostal or anyone else for whom they just naturally are able to do that. See, I'm convinced that not only should we read this story, but that in many ways this is one of the great lens through which we see and understand the church. 
part of our call as a church, part of the gift of being church, is that we get to help others to see and hear and feel God where they may not be able to do it for themselves. Part of the reason why we come together and we read a book like Esther is so that we can begin to do what I just said, which is to say, if we can see how God's at work in Esther, maybe we can see how God is at work in our own lives. When we do Great Banquet coming up next month, the end of next month, as I've said before, right, there's no great mystery. It's a, you, you, you get a bunch of people and they begin to talk about their stories and how they have seen God and felt God and heard God in their lives. And when you are a part of that, you begin to say, well, how do I see or feel or hear God in my life? We've got several, this is not a ZPC-sanctioned thing, but we have several uh, uh, spiritual directors in our ranks and a couple who are kind of in training. And one of the great gifts of a spiritual director, I'm happy to talk to you about them if you ever would like, is it's wonderful because you just get to tell them your story. You don't even ask, have to ask them how they're doing. And you just get to say, here's my story. And they will ask you a couple of questions. They may have a couple of other things to say. But by and large, what they are helping you to do is to see where God is at work in your life. When we get up here, as we oftentimes do, and say, look, we have to be a people who are slowing down. We have to be a people who are quiet. We have to be a people who aren't always rushing around. What we are doing is we are inviting them. You will oftentimes not be able to see or hear or feel God when you are running from one thing to the next. And when you are feeling all the stress and the anxiety in the world. If you want to be able to begin to see and feel and hear God, one of the most necessary steps, as I said several weeks ago, is to simply be still. I don't know where you are this morning. You might be someone who oftentimes is able to see and hear and feel God. And if that is the case, you need to be thankful. And give God praise for that. If you are perhaps more like me and my own inclination, then I invite you. I invite you to create space to go back, to ask questions. Where, where, what has my life looked like and begin to see do you see do you see the hand of God in ways that just taken one by one you might not be able to recognize and then I, I want to encourage each of us to realize that all of us can be one of these names like I just mentioned all of us can be a Rich or Rick or a Sue or a Judy or a Dave or a David all of us have these remarkable opportunities to be a part of other people's lives and to help them be able to see, to notice where God is alive. And when you do so, you get to be a part of this great story of God's kingdom who never leaves his people alone, who is always speaking who is always working, even in those moments when it takes faith to be able to see and hear and feel. Thanks be to God for Esther and for her story. Thanks be to God for all that he does. Amen? Let us pray. God, we pray that in this moment that you would help us to hear, to see, and to feel you, Lord. But if we don't, we pray that you would cultivate within us a spirit, Lord, that is willing and able to be still, to 
to reflect on our lives or our days or our weeks and to begin to see where you are at work. It's in your name we pray. Amen. said you 